I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to David Navetta. Dave is the U.S. co-chair of Norton Rose Fulbright's Data Protection, Privacy, and Cybersecurity Law Practice. David focuses on technology, privacy, information security, and intellectual property law. His work ranges from compliance and transactional work to breach notification, regulatory response, and litigation. David currently serves as a breach coach or is one of the approved panel for numerous cyber insurance carriers and companies and has helped dozens of companies across multiple industries respond to data security breaches. Prior to joining Norton Rose Fulbright, David co-founded the Info Law Group, a law firm focusing on information technology, privacy, security, and IP-related law. David and Info Law Group successfully served a wide assortment of U.S. and foreign clients from large Fortune 500 multinationals, retailers, hotels and restaurants, sophisticated technology companies, financial institutions, and many more. David is a certified information privacy professional through the International Association of Privacy Professionals and previously served as a co-chair of the American Bar Association's Information Security Committee and was a co-chair of the PCI Legal Risk Liability Working Group. He has spoken and written frequently concerning technology, privacy, and data security legal issues and is frequently cited as an expert in the press and otherwise. In this episode, we discuss transitioning from litigation to data privacy and cybersecurity, starting a cyber-focused law firm, the role of legal and data breach, how to perform effective tabletop exercises, when to bring in law enforcement in an incident, breach threats to small and medium-sized businesses, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Very good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, So one of the things I want to kind of start off with is how you kind of transitioned your law practice into data privacy and security from the various other areas of law that you could practice in? Right. Uh, It's a good question. Uh, I I basically started in this area around 2002. Um, I had been doing kind of general commercial litigation before that, but uh, around 2000, there was, uh, you know, kind of the dot-com stuff going on, and I, I saw that, you know, the law and and the technology issues uh, out there were starting to kind of collide in interesting ways and wanted to get in that space. I, I actually was in Chicago at that time and, and started towards what's called an IT law LLM, which is a master's. Um, got pretty close to finishing that uh, when I was recruited then to work uh, in New York at uh, AIG uh, to be the, the lawyer for their e-business risk solutions group. And uh, really, my job there was to um, help them develop their cyber insurance policy and understand the legal uh, risks, uh, regulatory risks, litigation risks associated with with cyber back back in 2002. Um, uh, so that's really how I got started in the space and um, have kind of evolved from there. I mean, were you a technologist by either hobby at some point or training at any point or does it? Yeah, no, I, I would say more hobby oriented. I had a uh, comfort level and then uh, done some IT related uh, coursework, but nothing 
nothing formal. Uh, so I, I had always been interested in technology, had done some of that programming work. And um, again, I think the, the, the interest level was peaked uh, by the, the, you know, the dot-com era and boom. Uh, and I uh, really wanted to meld the legal profession with, with technology and um, uh, serendipitously ended up at AIG, which uh, ultimately uh, was a great move to, to launch uh, into the space. Yeah, and at some point you did start a, a law firm with some other folks that I've gotten to know actually out in New York, like Boris Sagalas, and you know, what was kind of the impetus is to go out on, sorry, okay, we're gonna start a law firm, and kind of branded around information security and data privacy when, you know, maybe other firms were trying to do that as an aside to what they're doing, not a, as a main focus. Yeah. Well, after AIG around 2005, 2006, I, I moved out to Colorado, um, helped uh, some other um, companies develop their cyber insurance programs and policies. But uh, after the, the breach laws were passed in 2003, California being the first one, there started to be a more of a service-oriented industry around data, uh, data breach response. Uh, at the same time, there were privacy issues and compliance issues on the front end around developing security programs and, and privacy programs that were uh, becoming something that a lot of companies were worried about and, and concerned about. Um, on the marketing side, uh, many organizations were trying to figure out how to use and, and leverage personal information to, to, to use for marketing purposes and otherwise. And uh, eventually, uh, I found some like-minded people. I was working on my own for a while there who uh, had been at bigger firms, uh, wanted to try something a little different. Uh, I connected with, with someone named Tanya Forchite, and we, we had a discussion uh, and, and, and tried to rally a few other people from former big law people to d develop a boutique law firm. Um, I think part of the, the issue uh, and, and the attraction was we wanted to be a kind of a virtual firm and not have a physical presence anywhere. And that was something that um, we were finding even big companies were starting to uh, be comfortable with in many ways. Um, so we were able to kind of have our cake and eat it too, develop a, a specialized boutique firm. Uh, I think we got up to 16 lawyers at our peak. Uh, and we were all doing kind of subspecialties within the, the information law context, data security, privacy, uh, some media work. Um, and I, I would say at a certain point that that group of 16 I would have put it up against any any big law firms uh, staff, certainly back in 2009, uh, in terms of expertise and knowledge. I, I think we had critical mass there. Um, and so that was really the, the, the idea was to create something a little bit different, create something a little more flexibility, still service big clients, um, uh, but then have uh, kind of the, the virtualized aspect or virtualized model around it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that that didn't really exist back then. Um, I think we were a little a little ahead of our time during that time frame, um, and uh, it was it was it was a fun ride there uh, until I think ultimately the, these some of these issues got to be so huge that we reflected on and the virtual model and, and decided that perhaps we needed to do a, a change. And then you transitioned certainly to a much much larger firm, and so. Was it kind of hard to abandon almost that entrepreneurial roots to kind of go somewhere else where you were just now another another name yeah. in, in a much larger international firm? That's a good question. I, you know, I think we realized on some level from a business perspective that especially if we wanted to work with big clients, we needed to, to have a, a name behind us. So there was a, a reality there. But, I mean, uh, when we left in 2014, 
you know, it was like leaving your, 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 your child behind or something for college. I haven't done that yet, but I, uh, something I imagine uh, the same feeling where, um, you know, the, the firm still exists, in fact, right now. So a good, good friend still operating it. Uh, I think they've grown since we've left even. Uh, you know, and it was, uh, we, we felt like we, we had it kind of all there. We had flexibility. We had a bit of lifestyle. We had great, interesting clients and, and matters. Um, but, you know, there was a realization to get to the next level, we had to have a different platform. Um, I think the, the international aspect of, of where we are at Norton Rose Fulbright was, was part of the attraction as well. Um, their relationships with, with uh, you know, bigger uh, companies in the healthcare and financial institution industry uh, was also an attraction. We could, we could kind of cross-sell into those types of clients and provide the services. And we were going to be leading the group and, and kind of creating it and building it up ourselves. So that was also attractive. So it was, a, you know, it was a, we, we, we kind of regretted it a little bit and, and we're sorry to leave. But at the same time, we saw the opportunity and we felt it was a good one. Yeah. And one of the things, too, when, it, when you kind of look at, you know, the way things have evolved from particularly around cybersecurity and incident response, a lot of people have really come at it. I would say traditionally from very technology focused and don't necessarily make that connection. There's a legal component or even a data privacy component. We still deal a lot of times with uh, CISOs and directors of ITs that we say, hey, have you, have you talked to your attorneys about this? And that to them, it really doesn't connect. So I guess what is some of the roles and the importance of having your outside counsel um, be involved in a data breach, but what also should you be looking for when you're trying to find outside counsel? What should they bring to the table? that you might not have maybe with your inside counsel or your technical teams? Yeah, I, I think ultimately, and it's evolved over time, there's a realization that you know security issues and data security, of course, there's always almost always a technical component to it. But really, we're talking about business impacts. And it goes beyond legal, right? It goes to reputational. It goes to financial impact, business interruption, data asset loss. Um, that have different impacts on the organization. So legal, obviously, there's a, a legal impact when it comes to not only developing security programs and making sure they're compliant with, with the law, but when there's a data breach, there's liability issues, there are laws to comply with, there are regulatory actions. And so the legal function and role started to become a central role, especially around a data breach response where the lawyers were seen uh, and, and, and uh, needed to come in and, and actually establish attorney-client privilege and work with the various stakeholders and, and to manage the breach. Um, a lot of the role, I think, for the, for the information security lawyer and data privacy lawyer is, is almost a translation role within the company, um, uh, understanding enough about technology and those types of issues and those types of risks to be able to inform general counsel and kind of more you know, generalized business people as to what that means to them, what the impact uh, to their company may be. Uh, you know, I think the non-technical non people in many organizations sort of uh, looked at, at the technical people for a while and said, okay, that's their world, I'm in my world. There's a, a sort of a silo between those two. Uh, but when reality, the, the IT function uh, impacts so many aspects of a company, um, and again, increasingly so, that you can't divorce those two things. So if you're a lawyer not understanding the technology or a technologist not understanding the legal issues, there's a disconnect there that can cause uh, problems for the organization. Ultimately. Yeah, and I think we see even now it's, it's, it's there's, you know, heads can roll on that if you don't kind of think through some of the legal implications. There was announcement today that somebody, you know, uh, CISO of a very large company lost their job for not really 
disclosing and working with the breach in maybe a manner they should have. And it sounds almost like they didn't take that kind of legal advice uh, that they try to kind of do things on their own. Do you, do you still see that as a trend or is that starting to change where maybe the IT is uh, or the technical teams are starting to reach out to, you know, the business risk teams and the, the legal teams to, to kind of get some counsel and advice? Yeah, I, I, it's a push and a pull in many ways. I mean, I think some uh, on the IT security side, some of those folks are, um, I mean, just because it's been out there for longer, uh, understanding that there are legal touch points and issues and you know, maybe, maybe they're proactively reaching out. It goes sometimes the other way where legal is kind of proactively trying to get the tech and le- uh, security team more involved. Um, increasingly, though, there's, and I think this has been a benefit over time because of some of the, the bigger breaches became board level type breaches where board board members were potentially losing their jobs or or you know lawsuits were being filed against the board uh, related to data security breaches that there's more of a, a top-down type approach now the uh, you know the boards are asking questions they're setting up committees and so we're seeing more of that type of flow um, I also think there's potentially in, in some companies uh, when you when you hook into the, if you're a security person hooking into the GC role or function uh, and and you're getting the GC to sort of say, well, and agree, well, we need to do more because we're worried about liability, we're worried about compliance. You can get potentially more resources, you can get more backing to get uh, you know additional security measures in place. So there may be some strategic synergies between the legal function and the security function uh, in terms of uh, getting things done and working together. And so maybe that also may be a driver and a realization on, on both sides of that equation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting where you see sometimes, you know, the cybersecurity budget, who's going to pay for it out of what department, but the realization that ultimately it's a team sport, that people are going to have to kind of come together and it might be a shared cost, yeah. starts changing that dynamic. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and, and, and we're, we're seeing more conversations happening between these, these, these stakeholders. Um, you know, one thing that I think has been helpful in the insurance industry is that we, uh, tabletop exercises have become something that's offered, uh, and we, we do a, a fair amount of those. And that's really where you get all of the people who may not speak to each other on a daily basis or may not quite understand each other's worlds all together uh, and essentially forcing them to, to actually try to understand each other's worlds. Um, and so those types of exercises uh, are, are excellent and, and I think uh, open the doors to, and open people's eyes really to what you know, they need to do and how they need to think about each of their worlds more broadly than they might uh, if they kind of hadn't met some of these other folks that they're dealing with these days. Yeah, and we've certainly seen that, that increase where at the board level people are requesting the tabletops. One of the things that I've seen some people try to do is have it all done remote. Um, but I haven't seen it be as, as, as effective actually getting people in the room. What are your kind of feelings on can tabletops be done remotely or should it really be cramming everybody in a room and for a couple hours and getting in the fight a little bit? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I think you can do it remotely. And I think some of the companies we've dealt with have wanted to do that because they think it's more realistic, right? Because in reality, everyone will be in different spots. And so they want to emulate what would really happen. That said, I, I do think you get a, a more uh, a fuller conversation, a deeper dive if you're in the room with people and, you know, having, you know, to listen to them and hopefully the, you know, all the, the devices are turned off and you're, you're really focusing on something, it may not be what happens in real life, but that, that back and forth conversation and that interaction um, in person really, uh, I think, uh, makes a huge difference in how successful the actual exercise is oftentimes. We've started to do them actually kind of an interesting twist is um, 
having kind of the tactical uh, information or uh, incident response team in one room and then having senior management in another room and creating a scenario where uh, the, the tactical team gets certain inputs, which then require input from the, the, the senior management team and, and seeing how they interact in the kind of their different worlds yet connected to each other in, the, in that context. Um, we started designing them uh, a little bit differently and that's actually been very interesting and I think also more realistic because you know, there was actually a question it's when you actually need to go and start talking to your CEO or CFO you know what what level of input are they going to have in this what kind of authority will the security and incident response team have in terms of making decisions that could have you know significant business impacts one of the scenarios where we've been running is is kind of the the ransomware attack that not only encrypts the data but starts bringing down systems and there's a, a question as to whether to shut down more systems and uh, that dilemma in terms of who makes that decision and who's going to be responsible for that uh, in, in a real-time emergency, um, uh, you know, can pose a lot of different in, interesting questions. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes you don't have that senior management presence at some of these tabletops. I think that needs to happen more more frequently. And that's kind of the next level of interaction. I, you're getting the lawyers, you're getting the PR and communication people in that incident response team. Um, but ultimately, uh, increasingly so, I think, too, the business impacts uh, are really what are going to drive the decision-making in these uh, incidents. And uh, to have the, uh, the senior management there able to, to weigh in uh, is going to be more and more important over time. And they're even farther removed, further removed uh, oftentimes from IT or legal functions. Uh, and, and to have them understand all of it and how it all works together in terms of business impact is, uh, is maybe the next level of kind of interaction in some, in some of these exercises. Gotcha. And one of the things that, that certainly kind of we look for these trigger points in some of the tabletops and, and certainly in live incidents is you know, when to bring in law enforcement or that, that kind of government help. Is there a, a right or a wrong time to do that within organizations? What's the things that people should consider before they yeah. bring people in like that? Uh, so many, many companies, their, their first uh, instinct is we well, we have to report this to law enforcement. And, and that may not be true. I mean, in some cases, there may be a reason or a, a legal requirement to, to report um, but in most cases, it, it's a it's a it's a risk decision, cost benefit type decision. Um, I you know to bring law enforcement in at the beginning of an incident um, could be a distraction potentially in terms of how to respond to the incident. You might some might view it as, as kind of a, another uh, stakeholder to kind of have to deal with and feed information to in the middle of a, a very uh, emergent situation. Um, we often counsel uh, clients to sort of um, try to get ahead a little bit and, and conduct some investigation using a firm like Kivu uh, to you know get some more visibility as to what may have happened or, or not happened. Um, if law enforcement kind of wants to come in and do their own investigation and, and um, you know uh, gain access to, to systems or data, that can cause you know potential issues, NDA type issues, privacy issues, um, plus. They, you know, their conclusions may not dovetail with what, you know, uh, the, your own forensic team might be seeing, and that can affect um, a lot of different things from liability to, to what you say to the press. Um, so I, I think it's usually good to get some visibility before jumping uh, and talking to law enforcement. Um, there's also the question of, you know, what, what is law enforcement going to do, really, in many cases? Um, uh, they, they uh, there's so many breaches these days, frankly, that a lot of law enforcement uh, personnel are not really interested in most kind of uh, run-of-the-mill type situations. So uh, to even get their attention uh, may not even be something that 
uh, can happen in a breach scenario. So, uh, you know, the, the cost benefits there uh, are something we deal with on a regular basis. At the end of the day, there's a PR component, of course, so uh, to be able to say that you report it to law enforcement if something becomes public, that's something you want to get in, uh, get in, in your, your notice letters and, and kind of press releases. So we usually do end up uh, communicating with them and, and reporting on some level. It's just it's about timing, typically. Um, sometimes, if you get lucky, they may have information for you that can help you with the investigation. Um, we had a couple um, defense contractor-related breaches where the actors were, were nation-state related, and we were able to tap into the right people within law enforcement who handled uh, certain types of investigations for, uh, related to certain nation states. And with that contact point, we were able to get some good intel as to what was going on with our clients. So uh, that is actually, on, on the pro side, something to consider. But uh, in our experience, uh, you're not often getting that level of intelligence and information from law enforcement. In fact, if they have ongoing investigations, they're often very hesitant to provide too much information. Um, so those are the, the pros and cons and, and things you weigh. But ultimately, some sort of reporting is, is typical. Uh, it's just a matter of when and, and what you tell and how, how much information uh, you give them. Gotcha. Now, kind of looking back at where, where you are today, can you do you have any kind of rough sense of how many breaches you've worked on or, or coached at this point? <laughs> uh, hundreds, maybe uh, thousands. It's, it's not clear, but certainly hundreds. Um, we we get them in on a, on a, on a daily basis, uh, maybe sometimes two, three, four a day. Um, I mean, the world hears about the big ones in the in the, in the uh, on the front page and 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 kind of gets a sense of what's going on. But there's so much noise and activity. In the middle market, smaller market, um, breaches are occurring on a regular basis. Arguably, they're soft targets. They have less information, but if the attackers can scale their attacks across uh, various sectors or various vulnerabilities they may find, they can um, profit pretty well from even middle market and smaller breaches. So I think uh, the volume of it is actually surprising, uh, has been surprising to me over time. And uh, I don't think the general public is aware of just how much activity there actually is. Um, the good news is, you know, you get to see a lot of different uh, things, a lot of different attackers, a lot of different uh, mistakes that are made, a lot of a lot of different uh, strategies the attackers use, and uh, you, we tend to see things in waves. So, for a while there, the attackers were focused on the uh, real estate market, uh, real estate companies, mortgage companies. Uh, they were trying to intercept um, people making down payments on their houses, uh, steal information from mortgage applications, that type of thing. Uh, it, it, you, you see the attackers, once they find a way in, doing it over and over and over and over again. And then you know, by the time we uh, are handling these types of things, we might see 30 or 40 of them. And by the 30th or so, we, we can almost anticipate what's going to be you know, said on the, the initial phone call with whatever company we're dealing with. and. and I think um, being that, getting that level of volume and seeing that much variety and, and kind of seeing those waves that they have as they happen is, is, is actually really val really valuable. The first time you, you see something, you're trying to figure out what is this, how do we investigate it, where do we need to look. By, the, by that 30th time, you pretty much have it dialed in. You have a kind of a process for, for doing it. Um, you can be very efficient. You can help the client look around the corner a little bit. Um, I, I, get, I, I enjoy being able to, to have that level of, of insight and then being able to, to pass it on to the client, and, and it makes it for a much smoother response, ultimately. 
Yeah, definitely. And it, is there a particular trend that you're seeing right now in the types of attacks? I mean, for a while, is ransomware, is that starting to die off? Is that here to stay? Ransom, I, I, I say 2016 was the year of ransomware. That was like, it was rampant. It was it was kind of the new thing in a way, uh, in terms of at least mass scale type attacks. This year, I, I would say, has been the year of the phishing attack. I, 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 every probably every other attack, if not more, that we get in is somehow tied to some sort of phishing event. Um, and so um, whether it be the, you know, kind of the W-2 attacks that happen every year where they, they fish the, you know, the um, HR department um, and get all the W-2s from the employee uh, to the Microsoft Office 365 related um, phishing attacks that we see quite commonly where the attackers get credentials uh, and then log in remotely to uh, Microsoft Office 365 uh, access the email box, but then they also are trying to not only potentially take the data from the email box itself, but to uh, further fish into the contact list of the uh, of the email box they've taken over. They're trying to do payroll diversion. They're trying to do 401k diversion. Basically, whatever they can do to monetize that attack once they get in, uh, that's what the, we're, they're doing. So uh, the the phishing. Uh, the phishing attack is the point of access, and from there they try to uh, spread the attack either you know, sometimes to the actual network itself, but oftentimes attacking third-party services and using those credentials to log in wherever they can, uh, especially where a company has kind of a federated kind of login type uh, system set up. Yeah, and that's where, it, you know, it's, is the kind of recommendation that you would see in a, from a re- post-breach uh, remediation thing that, more companies should really be kind of using two-factor because it's kind of built in there. Would that stem a lot of it from what you've seen? Yeah. I mean, if you can't access remotely with just the username and password, uh, if you need that second factor of authentication, you can foil that attack. And, and they usually that's one of the remediation steps, longer term at least, that many companies take to, to, to address that. Um, you know, part of it, so just trying to educate employees and Again, there, I know there are anti-phishing campaigns out there, and and there are you know, tools, or like Fish Me, and things like that you can use. But I swear, we we still see people fall for these things. The attackers are more sophisticated in how they pull it off. Um, they 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 gather intel themselves uh, and try to make things more difficult to uh, resist in terms of clicking on things, and uh, they they attack in context as well. So. Uh, not only from a from a you know what does the email what does the phishing email look like but uh, it, context in, in time what is the actual email recipient or email owner who are they dealing with uh, what what kind of things are coming into their box so there's a timing element there and so you know it, it, it's very difficult to foil ultimately um, but again from Microsoft 365 or anything where remote access is necessary that that second factor of authentication can make a huge difference and essentially eliminate the risk, so. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've dealt with both on the proactive and responsive side, I've seen a lot, a lot of organizations, we touched on a little bit before with the small to medium size, feel that they're not targets. They can't be targets. Yet we see some of the numbers that, that I've seen recently that, you know, 60% of small businesses that suffer a cyber incident don't recover. You know, they basically have to shut down within a year. Um, and do you, do you kind of see that as a trend where they're still – you know, as you said before, there's kind of a soft target with small to medium-sized businesses that might not have that situational awareness that they can even be targets. Yeah. Well, a lot of our work comes in through the cyber insurance channel. So, well, you know, the benefit for these small companies is they have some sort of financial 
um, uh, third-party uh, resources that they can put to bear and handle the breach, even pay liability. So uh, I, we're not seeing our clients go to business necessarily there. Um, but, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, the, the it can't be me type attitude or I, I, they would never, why would they be interested in me or my company? Um, that That is fairly pervasive. I mean, these companies often don't have a lot of resources to put in for sophisticated uh, in, uh, security. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, they kind of just play it by ear. I mean, the best case scenario often is that you get some sort of small breach that these companies had to face, which almost serves as its own uh, real-life tabletop exercise when they, they get to learn a little bit about what uh, a bigger breach might be like if, you know, truly all the crown jewels were taken or all the customers were affected. Um, and so that usually will wake up a lot of companies in, into taking some action. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are smaller breaches, uh, so that, that, that's, uh, that's good news there. So I, I think, um, you know, over time, I'm not sure there's a solution, though, because small companies and middle market companies are always going to be a little bit behind the curve in terms of, of resources. Um, but the attackers are still going to be uh, pretty persistent about going after them if they find some sort of vulnerability. So, again, that's I, why I think the insurance exists. It, there's an inevitability associated with, with uh, these cyber types of attacks. And, uh, and uh, therefore, you need to either accept the risk or transfer it out. And, um, you know, to your point... If you take on too much risk yourself as a small or mid-sized company, uh, that can mean uh, potentially going out of business or, or um, you know, losing customers. So, yeah, and one of the things we've certainly seen is is with well, you know, the the grill in the room certainly GDPR coming up in about six months. Um, we've seen Department of Financial Services in New York State pass financial service regulations under state regs. You know, we're seeing more and more activity from regulators looking at cybersecurity and, and data privacy, uh, is that a trend that's going to continue? I mean, I think for a while we had HIPAA and OCR, and there was always oh, felt like maybe it didn't have enough teeth into it for a while, but they seem to be stepping up enforcement. Or should we expect that there should be increased enforcement at this time, and particularly with the 72-hour breach, re breach reporting kind of guidelines that are in, baked into more of these regulations? Yeah, I, I think um, there's a couple parts of that story. So first, uh, you know, the number of breaches that are happening are being reported uh, here in the U.S. Uh, and soon to be in Europe is, is enormous. So the, the, like law enforcement, regulators have the same issues around we can't investigate every single breach that comes in the door. Otherwise, you know, we just don't have the resources to do that, period. So they're going to pick and choose their battles ultimately. I, I think what we've seen here in the U.S. Um, and perhaps what we'll see in Europe is is um, you know certainly with the FTC, for example, they become aware or be, are made aware of a certain type of situation, right? Where uh, the uh, the company that was breached, you know, didn't do something that they feel they should have, or you know, something more kind of egregious uh, that they want to make exa an example of that company. Um, or it could be, you know, we saw this a little bit with the Internet of Things. There was a company that I can I can't remember the name of it, but they had baby monitors that had been accessed and. And again, I, you know, what the actual harm of that is on some level is is debatable. But clearly, they were put. The FTC was sending a signal that okay, you know, IoT and, and kind of device manufacturers, you're on the front line now of security. Here's an example of where it can go wrong. Uh, you, you know, 
the red flag is now up uh, courtesy of this enforcement action. I can see uh, that happening in, in Europe as well. I mean, uh, with Europe, it, it's going to be very interesting because here, you know, we have the breach laws and that is kind of uh, forced a lot of, of these breaches to come to the surface that would otherwise have not been um, seen the light of day ultimately. Uh, but they have fairly limited definitions of what you know constitutes a breach, when a breach needs to be reported, the types of information that can be exposed are, are fairly narrowly defined. Um, there's some, some definitional issues as to whether a, a breach has actually been discovered or not. And so you know, what's being reported is probably less than, you know, kind of what is happening out there in terms of incidents. In Europe, we're going to have a definition of personal information that is extremely broad. Um, uh, so, you know, your email footer on your uh, your personal or your, your business email, uh, if exposed to someone who shouldn't be seeing it, could be considered, you know, a, a potential breach. Um, so we could have a lot of activity in Europe. And I think, uh, again, a lot of that activity is kind of, uh, you know, if your email footer is 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 breached, so to speak, what what is the actual impact? What is the actual risk or harm? Um, there may be none. Uh, so I, I think there's going to be a little bit of a feeling out process, uh, not only from the regulatory point of view, but from the you know the companies who are uh, having to deal with these situations, uh, in terms of what really needs to happen here, what is really truly. Uh, problematic versus what is kind of routine and, and less risky. I think perhaps we might see those regulators kind of take a similar approach as the FTC. And if they see something very egregious or that they think is going to be systemat systematic or, or cause you know, bigger issues, those are the companies they may focus on ultimately. Um, again, I think they're going to have the same issues with resources as well because of uh, you know the potential volume that could come in. They're going to have to pick their battles. So I think uh, from a company point of view, doing business in Europe and, and as well as other jurisdictions, Australia, Canada, that are coming online, you want to be you know kind of in the middle of the pack in terms of these types of situations. If you're doing something really unusual or uh, there's something egregious going on, that's when you're more likely to get hit um, with, a, with a regulatory re response. Sure, and, and, and by no means do I, I mean to goad you into a, a legal advice comment here, but there's no way would it constitute it. But, you know, if, if a company is to take a look at the situation, okay, I'm under certain regulations, whether it's state or national, whatever, and they say, okay, I'm going to take what I think are reasonable steps. We're going to take some effort to look at it, that might not be perfect. Is that a good enough start where they might be able to afford themselves some protection and say, at least we're situationally aware. We try to take some steps, um, understanding that perfection is might not be attainable, but at least we're we're trying to do something. Is that something that regulators are going to assess a little bit more than perfection? Right from a from a, a proactive kind of security response point of view, as well as preventative. Um, yeah, I, I think, and again, this goes to kind of the interest level of regulators and, and what they're what they're really worried about. I mean, I think they there's some level of expectation that there are going to be breaches. I mean, I think the, the regulators that deal with these things on a daily basis live and breathe it. So if, if we're inundated here as one law firm, they're you know, even more exposed to just a flood of situations. So they're going to realize that, you know, if you're a company who's who's uh, in good faith, you know, kind of spent some money on security, tried to put something in place, um, but, you know, still got fished or, or you know, something got it let in uh, through some means that may be preventable, but, uh, you know, not ultimately perfect. 
um, I, you know, they're, you're more likely to get a pass in those situations. And in fact, when we respond to regulators um, where our companies uh, haven't done kind of maybe a full, a full kind of job or a reasonable job or there are some holes, we try to proactively get that company to, you know, go out and hire a, a consultant and have a plan to show that despite what happened, they've got, you know, X, Y, and Z steps that they're, they're putting into place. That can go by itself, even if, you, uh, if the company didn't have really good controls in place initially, that effort and that serious attempt to, like, address and remediate can go pretty long with a long way with these regulators as well. So not only not only are regulators saying, well, if you kind of did the right thing, we're you know going to look at you a little differently and maybe give you a, a pass. They're also because there's so much going on, uh, saying, well, not only are we going to potentially give you a pass if you're you didn't uh, if you for doing the right thing here, but also if you're actually trying to fix what it, the problems exist, more likely to give you uh, give a company a pass potentially. So. Um, yeah, those 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 things can go pretty far. A lot of it, and this comes to the legal point of view, is, is being able to tell tell the story uh, you know, of what happened. Um, you know, companies get hit and struck by lightning. That that happens, uh, despite their best efforts. And if you can tell that story, most regulators are are open to hearing that story and uh, you know and trying to understand where a company's coming from. Yeah, I think there there, there might be a, a common misconception that the regulators are out to get people, and I, I don't think that's a, at times a fair characterization of them. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, they, they, they have a mandate, they have a law. Some, some of them um, are, are certainly, uh, take it, you know, should, and they should, they take it very seriously. And, uh, and but at the same time, uh, they can't fight every battle. And uh, if they see something they really don't like, that's when they're going to really uh, push the buttons, ultimately. Uh, you know, the size of the breach is often a criteria where, where regulators that get involved or don't get involved. Uh, the the nature of the incident, was it something that really, you know, 10 years ago, you know, uh, companies were worried about this, but now everyone's got it solved. Why are you still uh, an organization that hasn't done what everyone else has done? And, and, you know, especially if it's a very kind of cost-effective type of thing, they're going to, they're, you know, within the regulations, some of them themselves, there there is a component of um, reasonableness and, and kind of cost. You don't have to build Fort Knox, um, but if if something's really cheap to prevent, and uh, you haven't done it, and it's been kind of a, a solution that's is, you know standard you know for many years, that's when they're going to get more upset and, and try to make an example out of you. And as I mentioned earlier, the kind of the cutting edge technologies where. You know, there might be a rush to market to be f- and, and security and privacy is an afterthought. That's when they're going to also try to make uh, an example, uh, potentially, of a company. Gotcha. So now, if, you know, kind of maybe role plays a little bit. If, if I'm, uh, you know, coming out of kind of uh, law school and I'm looking at data privacy and cybersecurity, what would be some advice to maybe young or new attorneys that are entering this that want to get into this area of legal practice? Yeah. I think uh, there, there is certainly an advantage of, of being what I call like a hybrid or a cyborg, um, uh, where you have a technical background uh, uh, that you can then uh, meld into the legal education. Um, so I think people like that are going to be almost out of the gate pretty valuable um, in, in many different uh, fields, probably not, not, not just law firms, but you know, companies like forensic companies or um, in-house uh, type roles for privacy-related officers, that type of thing. Uh, so trying to uh, brush up on the technical side of things, I think, is very helpful. I also think, and this is kind of how I got started in this, in this space in terms of 
uh, getting out there, um, uh, we're still at a place where new technologies, new laws, new litigation, new legal issues are coming online almost on a daily basis. So, um, you know, when I started out, I set up a blog and just started kind of writing about things. That process of, of blogging and kind of forcing uh, myself to actually put things out there, uh, again, uh, the, the, the fear of like putting something out there and basically being critiqued and judged on it um, uh, by itself creates, I think, a, a better work product. But the bottom line is, is that even uh, you know, people starting out in this field, younger people can uh, take, a, take an issue or, or try to pr predict an issue that will come about in the future, and you can almost own it uh, and, and start talking about it. And the tools we have, social media-wise and otherwise, um, you can, as a, as a younger person, kind of be known potentially for that issue and, and, and get some exposure there. So I, I think the, the practice of, um, of putting yourself out there, um, using social media, writing, trying to like uh, anticipate the next issue, um, you don't need to be someone who has 20 years of experience. In fact, at this point, it's much harder because of all the things that are going on to actually kind of stay ahead of some of these issues. Uh, as a younger person, you, you probably have the time and energy to do that. Um, and so I, I would recommend and, and encourage uh, younger folks to, to look out there, not be afraid to put themselves out there, uh, join organizations where people are talking about these issues, write about them, um, and try to uh, basically anticipate the, the next legal issues or the next technology that will warp a particular legal issue. Uh, even better if you can tie that back into what a, what a company might be worried about. So here's the next legal issue. It's uh, Internet of Things. Organizations are, are um, increasingly um, either selling that Internet of Things type devices or incorporating them into their own business, the connectivity uh, of those companies in the, in the in the perimeter of their network is essentially expanding. What does that mean to the general counsel? What does that mean to the security department? What do we need to worry about now? Those types of issues, uh, if you can uh, kind of stay a little bit ahead of the curve, even as a younger person, uh, you can get a lot of recognition and, and kind of build up from there. Gotcha. It kind of maybe a similar question to this, but it, maybe if I'm an experienced attorney and I want to pivot into cyber, are there specific things or are there things that I maybe have as part of my general law practice or history that could be applicable to this new area if I've never done things within cyber? Yeah. Well, yeah, so in the litigation context, what has been interesting is that in the plaintiff side, um, what, what they've tried to do is, is kind of shoehorn uh, their their claims into existing statutes. Um, you know, the, the CMIA, the Confidential uh, confidentiality, of confidentiality of Medical Information Act in California is an example. Uh, FACTA is another example where that uh, prohibits a certain number of, of credit card uh, digits be from being printed on receipts. So I think in the litigation context, if you've dealt with those those statutes in other you know, non-cyber related contexts, perhaps, um, you might be able to then pivot and, and, and apply uh, the cyber related uh, issues in, in that context, certainly. Um, uh, in terms of I mean, uh, the one thing that we, we see is that these issues come up in a lot of different ways uh, on the transactional side. Uh, if you're negotiating uh, IT related transactions, uh, you're going to have to learn and, and understand privacy and security because a lot of those terms are now being incorporated into cloud computing contracts or software as a service contracts or software licenses, what have you. So. 
Um, if you're kind of just doing the general commercial terms of those contracts, you, you know, you should probably try to brush up on data security and privacy issues and, and, and be able to address those in the same context. And then, again, once you, once you gain kind of an understanding of a lot of those issues, it can be applied in different, different areas. Uh, you might be uh, focused on vendor management issues within the contract, and then you can help a company build out a vendor management program uh, on, the, on the compliance side and then kind of build from there. I mean, that's a lot of what I started out doing um, beyond the, 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 the cyber work for uh, AIG was uh, on the IT transactional side, helping out uh, uh, some lawyers, uh, you know, applying my knowledge that I had kind of gained from doing the, the cyber insurance program and understanding those risks, and then morphing that into, okay, we buy a lot of technology, we need a data security and privacy um, set of terms and conditions, what does that look like? And, and then kind of drafting that up from experience. Uh, so, you know, that's that's how you can kind of uh, learn a little bit, stay stay within your kind of core area, but understand how these issues affect it, and then sometimes build up from there and become more of an expert. Awesome. Well, Dave, I would greatly appreciate you taking the time today. You mentioned you had a blog. Is there some other places people can find you online and, and where you're putting out some ideas? Uh, yes, but the blog, uh, I think it's uh, dataprotection.com. Uh, I'll have to double-check that with you later. But uh, that's the one of the best places. Uh, speaking engagements, of course, at various conferences. Um, hopefully some, some more writing when I get some time in the future on a few issues. But, uh, yeah, so just, uh, just out and about, hopefully. Great. Well, I'll put all the information in the show notes so people can find you. But uh, thanks again. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.